Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Single Malt History with Gareth Russell and the first in my series of episodes giving you a day-by-day account of the Titanic's only commercial voyage. This is the anniversary of that week, so don't forget to subscribe or follow so you can relive the story of this fascinating tragedy. On this day, April 10th, the Titanic set off from Southampton in southern England to begin her 3,000-mile journey to New York. It was her first voyage with passengers, and as we all know, I don't think this requires a spoiler alert. It would sadly be her last as well. Over the next week, with the help of some eyewitness testimonies read by actors I have dragooned and my own narration, I hope I'll give you a sense of what travel, life and death on the great ship was like. Today, I'm very grateful to Caelan Carraher and Rebecca Lenehan for their time and talent in reading two eyewitness testimonies about this day. But firstly, of course, along with my book on the Titanic, I'm also, by trade, a historian of monarchy. And it would be remiss of me in that capacity not to comment on yesterday's news when Buckingham Palace announced that His Royal Highness the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Merioneth and Baron Greenwich died at Windsor Castle yesterday morning. For those interested in historical details or trivia, Prince Philip was the longest-serving royal consort in our nation's history, beating the previous record holder, the 18th century's Queen Charlotte, who served as George III's consort for 57 years. His Royal Highness had a suitably dramatic, if inauspicious, start to life when he was born Greece's Prince Philip during the downfall of the Greek monarchy on June 10, 1921. Famously, the popular story of his birth tells us that his mother, Princess Alice, gave birth to him on a kitchen table on the island of Corfu, where the exiled Greek royal family used an empty orange crate for the new prince's cradle. Initially educated at a boarding school in Germany, he left his school when his headmaster, Dr. Kurt Hahn, was drummed out of his job by the Nazis for being Jewish and a prominent anti-fascist. Prince Philip chose to relocate with his headmaster when Dr. Hahn refugeed to Scotland, where he opened a new boarding school, Gordonston, at which Prince Philip was thus one of the earliest pupils. Educated predominantly in Scotland, Prince Philip, along with his uncle, Lord Mountbatten, joined the British war effort during the Second World War, serving with distinction. This was despite his sister's marriages to various German princes, with at least two of those brothers-in-law being sympathetic to Nazism. Although we now know that one of his sisters, Princess Theodora, and her husband in fact remained sympathetic to the anti-Nazi Dr. Hahn. 
His mother joined Philip on the Allied side of the conflict. During the same war, Princess Alice helped hide and smuggle out many Greek Jews away from the expanding Nazi occupation of Greece and the Holocaust it carried in its wake. For this, Prince Philip's mother was declared righteous among the nations by the Israeli government after the war. I stress some of these biographical details to counterbalance the unfettered idiocy rampant in social media circles, where some people with zero knowledge of history seem to think that they're under no obligation to match speech with knowledge and are calling Prince Philip a Nazi. A word, an insult, which is glibly tossed around too easily today anyway, but which also has absolutely no place whatsoever with someone who served in the war that destroyed Nazism. My own view is that those who, like Prince Philip, fought in the Allied Armed Forces during the Second World War have done more to fight fascism and Nazism than anybody sitting behind a keyboard will ever be capable of. There was also significant tragedy in Philip's life beyond his father's abandonment. His mother suffered a nervous breakdown and was briefly institutionalised, while his sister, Cecile, was killed in an aeroplane crash when she was in the final stages of her pregnancy. Cecile's two young sons were also on board and lost their lives. In the recent obituaries of the Duke of Edinburgh, it has emerged that Prince Philip kept a splinter from the aeroplane crash for the rest of his life. Philip was made a Royal Highness by King George VI, who also created him Duke of Edinburgh, one day before he married the Princess Elizabeth at Westminster Abbey on November 20th, 1947. Prince Philip was at his wife's side during their visit to Kenya in 1952, where they learned of her father's death and her succession to the throne as Queen Elizabeth II. His Royal Highness was noted and often controversial in the 1950s for his liberal politics and his open support for reforming the monarchy, something which allegedly resulted in clashes with his mother-in-law, the far more conservative Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother. Philip's subscription to several socialist newspapers caused a mixture of amusement and profound discomfort in palace circles. He was an active and involved patron of British technology and charities, with the Duke of Edinburgh's award to promote self-improvement throughout outdoor activity being his most wide-reaching achievement. Founded by the Prince in 1956 and heavily overseen by him subsequently, it has since expanded successfully into 144 nations. This week on BBC Radio Ulster, the former President of Ireland, Mary McAleese, spoke particularly well on her cooperation with the Duke of Edinburgh during her time as President and particularly through the Duke of Edinburgh Award Programme. His Royal Highness remained close to his natal family, even providing much of the vital DNA evidence needed to identify the bones of the murdered Romanovs when they were discovered in the 1990s. The Tsar and his family had been slaughtered by communists three years before Prince Philip's birth, but their bones could not be unearthed until the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
His grandsons, the Princes William and Harry, gave Prince Philip much of the credit for helping them emotionally through the trauma that followed their mother's death in a car accident in 1997. In May 2017, it was announced that the Duke of Edinburgh had decided, with the full support of the Queen, to no longer carry out public engagements. This marked the Duke's retirement, aged 96. The Duke of Edinburgh, however, remained patron, president or member of over 780 organisations with which he continued to be associated until his death, although he no longer played an active role by attending most engagements. An exception was made during the COVID-19 pandemic, when the Prince publicly appeared to thank National Health Service heroes and frontline workers for their courage, their expertise and their dedication. Perhaps the best assessment at this time is left to his widow, Her Majesty the Queen, who on their golden wedding anniversary in 1997 said the following. All too often I fear Prince Philip has had to listen to me speaking. Frequently we have discussed my intended speech beforehand, and as you will imagine, his views have been expressed in a forthright manner. He is someone who doesn't take easily to compliments, but he has quite simply been my strength and stay all these years. And I and his whole family, and this and many other countries, owe him a debt greater than he would ever claim or we shall ever know. His Royal Highness was 99 years old. The Queen's grief after 74 years of marriage can frankly only be imagined. And now on to the Titanic. The sun rose over the southern English port of Southampton at about 23 minutes past five on Wednesday, April 10th, 1912, illuminating the docked Titanic, the world's newest and largest luxury liner, which six and a half hours later would begin her inaugural voyage to America, with stopovers along the way at a northern French port and then a southern Irish one before the six-day journey across the Atlantic. What did the Titanic look like on this slightly overcast spring morning? Weighing in at just over 46,000 tonnes with a black hull and white superstructure set off by four funnels painted with the yellow and black signature colours of her operators, the White Star Line. You could identify ships by the colours used to paint their funnels, and in this golden age of shipping, the White Star Line company was one of the brightest success stories. She was also, as a ship, just over 882 feet long, with the name Titanic inscribed onto her bow, the front of the ship, and at the back or stern you could also see the words Titanic Liverpool. This particular detail often confuses people. Why Liverpool? The Titanic had been built in Belfast and it sailed from Southampton, so why was Liverpool the city name inscribed on her stern? Well, that's because the city on a ship denotes its port of registry and the White Star Line headquarters were in Liverpool. But as I said, it was Belfast where she had been built and launched from the Harland and Wolf shipyards in the east of the city. 
You may have heard people referring to the Titanic's sister ships. Uh, this doesn't mean ships operated by the same company. The White Star Line ran many ships, all of which had names ending in the company tradition with IC Ick. Uh, but other ships they owned, like the Oceanic or the Cedric, weren't sister ships to the Titanic just because they were also White Star owned. I don't know, maybe they could be called cousin ships. Um, I've said that in a moment of off-script whimsy, and now I'm afraid the incredibly precise um, nautical enthusiasts will come for me. I was only joking about the cousin ships point. Uh, back on script, sister ships uh, is a more specific uh, category than that. It is when a series of ships are built off largely similar designs. They're not usually identical, but they are close enough to be regarded as quote-unquote sisters. The Titanic was the second of three sister ships, all designed to win back for the White Star Line the crown of owning the largest and most luxurious ships in the world. The first of these sisters, the Olympic, had entered commercial service a year earlier in 1911 to rave reviews. The press had slightly exhausted themselves with coverage of the Olympic, which meant that the Titanic really didn't get as much attention. But she was still referred to as the new Queen of the Ocean in publicity material. There were also a few improvements between the sisters. The Titanic, for instance, had a new extra café, the Café Parisienne. It had a larger first-class restaurant and reception room. A new limited, larger class of suites available with their own private promenade decks as the most expensive ticket in first class. There had also been some pretty significant improvements to the cruise accommodation as well as improvements in lighting and ventilation to the general room, which was the main socialising space for third-class passengers. Watching the tens of thousands of Belfast workers toil between 1908 and 1911 to build the Titanic and the Olympic before her, the North Irish writer Shan Bullock was particularly struck with the industry and ingenuity of Belfast's designers and workers. But Bullock was also deeply moved by just how much the Titanic represented the culmination in several generations of works in the size and capabilities of ocean liners. Here we have actor Caelan Carragher reading Shan Bullock's eyewitness accounts of the skill and scale that went into building the Titanic, as well as Belfast's pride in the ship they had produced. Boilers as tall as houses, shafts the lads' height and diameter, enormous propellers hanging like some monstrous sea animal in chains, turbine motors on which workmen clambered as upon a cliff, huge pneumatic hammers and quiet, slow-moving machines that dealt with coal and steel, shearing it, punching it, planning it, as if it had been dinner cheese. Then to the moulding loft, large enough for a football ground, on its floor a beautiful maze of frame lines, on through the joiner shops where their tools can do everything but speak. The Titanic was an evolution rather than a creation, 
a triumphant product of numberless experiments, a perfection embodying who knows what endeavour, from this a little, from that a little more, of human brain and hand and imagination. The Titanic was, as Shan Bullock so rightly asserted, the product of a remarkable evolution. After she was completed in Belfast at the start of April, she went to Southampton where a few finishing touches were added over the course of a week before she set sail with her first passengers. And the shipping industry was a well-oiled, if you'll pardon the pun, machine by 1912. Many passengers sent their luggage ahead to speed up the boarding process when they got there. And so on this April morning, vast quantities of luggage were being brought on board the Titanic with White Star Company labels on each piece clearly indicating where the owners wanted them stored. So for instance, if a piece of luggage belonging to a first class ticket holder had a shipping line label with the words cabin or stateroom on it, that indicated it should be taken to that passenger's bedroom. If they had written baggage room or wanted, it meant that it shouldn't go immediately to their accommodation, but it did contain items which they might want to access later in the voyage. So it would be held in a luggage room until they or a servant or a crew member went to retrieve it for them. If they had written not wanted on their luggage label, that luggage went deep into the ship's hold until the end of the voyage. We have such a nostalgic image of uh, old suitcases covered with ocean liner stickers because they started as a useful trend for marking out where luggage should go and should go, sorry, and then kind of became axiomatic with um, with the image of travel by ocean liner. For convenience's sake, shipping lines didn't print these ticket labels for individual ships. This is still a business, albeit often a picturesque one, and efficiency is thus key. So the labels on this April morning wouldn't have read Titanic, but rather White Star Line, so they could be printed en masse and used for all of their ships. Likewise, if you were travelling on something like the Kronprinzess in Sicily, the labels would have read Northern German Lloyd, or whether it was the Lusitania, the Coronia, or the Mauritania, the labels would say Cunard Line. And at this point, I'd like to take a moment to shout out to my friend, Archie Seabag Montefiore, who can work a James Cameron Titanic quote into any situation. And at that mention of the Mauritania, he is now saying, wherever he's listening to this, like Rose, that he doesn't see what all the fuss is about because it doesn't look any bigger than the Mauritania. This luggage, actually I'm just thinking, if Archie never comments on this joke, I will know that he and Antonia haven't listened to it. Maybe I will pepper all the podcasts with personal bon mots to trap my friends. I jest, I'm sure he will. I'll let you know in episode three. This luggage made its way onto the Titanic as the ship nestled next to a large shed that accommodated the technicalities of boarding. It also had railway lines running next to the ship from which arrived two chartered boat trains to bring paying White Star Line passengers from London down to Southampton. 
The first of these boat trains was chartered to bring third-class ticket holders, and this was part of a tactical reason by White Star Line, which preferred to give third-class passengers a much longer embarkation window than those travelling in first or second class, and the reason for this is surprisingly touching. I came across why when I was researching uh, my book on the Titanic, and at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, I was able to track down a, a travel guide from the time, or sort of travel aid for first-class passengers, written uh, by a man called R.A. Fletcher. I think if memory serves, it was published in, I think, 1913. And he explained to his readers why third class needed longer to board. And it was because most third class passengers sailing to America were emigrants. And so it was a lot more emotional for them saying goodbye than tourists in second class or those with the money to travel regularly, like the passengers in first class. In 1912, immigration to America was big business. While some of the more elite shipping lines, like White Star Line, were increasingly making a huge amount of money from wealthy travellers, the shipping lines still earned their metaphorical bread and butter from third-class revenue. To give you an idea of the sheer scale of immigration into the United States at this time, in the course of the commercial year of 1912, the White Star ships alone, so this is one company in one year, transported 23,000 emigrants from Europe to a new life in America. So, White Star Line gave third class a longer boarding time for two reasons. The first was to check, uh, as you may have seen dramatised in some uh, movies, that in line with American quarantine and immigration legislation, none of the emigrants were carrying lethal or contagious diseases. And the other reason was because they knew a lot of third class would take a really long time to say goodbye at the pier to their loved ones staying behind, possibly forever and certainly for a long time. One third-class passenger who didn't feel any grief that morning was 31-year-old Elizabeth Dowdle, a New Jersey woman working as a governess and one of the few American citizens in the Titanic's third class. Elizabeth felt nothing but relief at the sight of the Titanic's shining black hull looming above her as she stepped off the train and towards the gangplank. Elizabeth had arrived at Waterloo train station in London on time for the third class train, but something had gone wrong with the engine's brake valve moments after the train set off, meaning that there had been a delay causing Elizabeth to worry that they would miss the ship. Of course, the Titanic was thoroughly unlikely to leave without its boat train's arrival. You know, that was a significant number of its passengers. But Elizabeth Dowdle wasn't to know that, and she had worried until the train set off again. Elizabeth boarded the Titanic with a six-year-old girl, Ethel. But Ethel wasn't her daughter. She was her charge. Ethel's mother was an American opera singer on tour in Europe, and after her tour was extended, she had asked Elizabeth, as Ethel's governess, 
to take Ethel back home to her grandparents in America. It might seem a bit unusual to us that a child in the care of a governess would be travelling in third class, but years of media presentations have left us imagining that third class on the Titanic represented poverty, while first class represents extreme wealth. In fact, the White Star Line had such a high reputation for its cleanliness, food, comfort and safety in third class that tickets for it usually cost as much as they did for second class on other ships. Elizabeth and little Ethel had actually travelled over to Britain in second class on the Olympic, but while Ethel's mother was an opera singer, she evidently did quail at the cost of two tickets for Titanic second class, especially after she had so recently paid that price for the Olympic. And so she sent her daughter and her governess back to America in the perfectly acceptable, um, to her and apparently to Elizabeth as well, third class. The closest comparison I can make today is is not to think of third class as, uh, say, the equivalent of a budget airline, but more like if you had a transatlantic economy or coach ticket with the likes of Aer Lingus, British Airways, Virgin Atlantic or Delta. It's not something that would be necessarily very cheap. And you would expect a certain pretty decent standard of comfort while you travelled. The delay with the third class train seems to have pushed back the boat train for first and second class, who only arrived at about 11.30 and sailing time was due for noon. As the first and second class passengers moved towards the ship from the train, society gossip columnists hoped to grab a quote from the beautiful Countess of Rothes as she boarded with her parents, her husband's cousin and a maid. The White Star Line's slim and impeccably dressed managing director, J. Bruce Ismay, was travelling too, without his wife Florence perhaps fueling rumours that their marriage was continuing its trajectory into unhappiness. Railway tycoon Charles Melville Hayes boarded at Southampton, as did the world-famous journalist William T. Stead with his Santa Claus-esque beard. Stead was not only a famous writer, but also a famous defender of the then popular creed of spiritualism, the belief that one could contact the dead through seances and mediums. After these passengers had presented their tickets, crew members escorted them to their cabins or, to use the rather grander parlance preferred, their staterooms. Many then chose to go up on deck either to the promenade deck or the boat deck, where the Whitewood lifeboats were stored. The views were quite a bit better from the promenade deck below, because the lifeboats tended to obscure the sightline. Interestingly, perhaps interestingly, uh, the difference between a ship and a boat is that a ship is a nautical craft large enough to accommodate other boats on it, i.e. lifeboats. For passengers who made their way up top to watch the moment of departure, they might have noticed how crowded Southampton Harbour was rather than the pier. 
Southampton was one of the busiest ports in the world, but there were more ships than usual at anchor that day. In fact, there were so many of them that the red, white and blue funnels off the American Line's ship New York were tied right next to the yellow and black White Star funnels of the Oceanic, with the New York almost being tied up after a fashion to the Oceanic. Elsewhere, there were other ships crowding the area, like the Philadelphia, the St. Louis and the Majestic. The reason for this was that there wasn't enough coal. Only four days before the Titanic set off from Southampton, the British Miners' Federation, a trade union, had called off a six-week miners' strike. That strike had caused a shortage in coal, which saw many of the smaller ships, like the ones tightly packed together near the Oceanic and New York, to have their voyages cancelled, and several shipping lines seemed to have raided the smaller ships' coal bunkers to get the fuel they needed to keep the larger ocean liners on schedule. Only a few minutes late, around midday, the Titanic eased off from her pier. Her propellers spun to life, smoke billowed from her operating funnels, the harbour water churned. But as the ship of dreams took her first step towards New York, a sound like gunshot tore through the crowd, followed by the agonised scream of a bystander. The Titanic was coming a lot closer to a New York than planned, as the giant amount of suction created by the Titanic's propellers had caused the New York's mooring lines to snap, lacerating a woman nearby, and slowly the New York was pulled out into the water, edging closer and closer to the Titanic. Passengers on deck thought for a moment that the New York was about to ram the Titanic, and for her captain, Edward Smith, this was a potential catastrophe. After all, only a few months earlier, the same thing had happened to the Olympic, when her size was blamed for sucking in the warship Hawk in a collision that pierced the Olympic's hull and left some of her second-class cabins exposed to the air. The whole voyage had to be cancelled. A quick-thinking, technology-loving first-class passenger managed to catch a photograph from the promenade deck which shows us just how close the New York came to hitting the Titanic, thereby forcing her to cancel her voyage. Captain Smith's quick thinking and lessons learned from the Olympic saw him cut the engines just in time, as the New York was guided back to safety before the Titanic, further delayed, resumed her journey. One of those who saw the near collision was a man called Isidore Strauss, a former congressman for New York's 18th district and owner of Macy's department store. Strauss was a regular transatlantic traveller and in fact he had actually sailed as a passenger on the New York a few years earlier. After the Titanic started moving again, Strauss returned down to sea deck. Uh, all the Titanic's decks bar the boat deck were alphabetically named. On sea deck was his suite, 
which he was sharing with his wife, Ida. He found her writing a thank you note in the parlour of their suite because a friend from London had managed to arrange for a farewell bouquet of flowers to be sent as a surprise to the Strauss's accommodation. They had discovered this delightful uh, thoughtful gesture when they boarded and Ida wanted to send the friend a letter expressing her gratitude. The Titanic would be stopping to collect more passengers and deposit any letters at the French town of Cherbourg in a few hours time so Ida decided to get the letter done and posted rather than join her husband on deck for the send-off. Ida Strauss had been born in Hesch-Darmstadt, which is now part of Germany, before emigrating to America as a child. Ida, like her husband, was a passionate defender of immigrants to America, particularly those fleeing anti-Semitic persecution in Europe and Asia. She was also a champion of educational reform and of seeing more women in public roles. The friend she wrote to, Lillian Burbage, was married to the owner of Harrods, London's famous department store, and they had helped host the Strausses during their recent stay in London. The Burbages were planning to visit America soon, where Mr and Mrs Strauss hoped to return their hospitality. Ida's thank you note is read here by Rebecca Lenehan, and it mentions both their suite and the near miss with the SS New York. Dear Mrs Burbage, you cannot imagine how pleased I was to find your exquisite basket of flowers in our sitting room on the steamer. The roses and carnations are all so beautiful in colour, and as fresh as though they had just been cut. Thank you so much for your sweet attention, which we both appreciate very much. But what a ship! So huge and so magnificently appointed. Our rooms are furnished in the best of taste and most luxuriously, and they really are rooms, not cabins. But size seems to bring its troubles. Mr. Strauss, who was on deck when the start was made, said that at one time it stroked painfully near to a repetition of the Olympics experience on her first trip out of the harbour. But the danger was soon averted, and we are now well on our course across the channel to Cherbourg. Again, thanking you and Mr. Burbage for your lovely attention and good wishes, and in the pleasant anticipation of seeing you with us next summer. I am with cordial greetings in which Mr. Strauss heartily joins. Very sincerely yours, Ida R. Strauss. Ida's letter was taken off at Cherbourg while she and her husband were sitting down to their first dinner in the Titanic's dining saloon, its decoration inspired by Elizabeth I's childhood home as well as a country house belonging to the Duke of Rutland. The Titanic was too big to dock in Cherbourg Harbour, and so a tender, a small ferry, brought passengers out from Cherbourg to the Titanic. That tender, called the Nomadic, is now the last purely White Star Line ship left in existence. It survives as a museum and tourist attraction back in its native Belfast. On Wednesday evening, as the sun set, the Nomadic brought to the Titanic more passengers, like silent movie star Dorothy Gibson, who, even before her acting career, had been famous as one of America's highest-paid fashion models. Another fan of haute couture was the chic Edith Rosenbaum, a fashion journalist returning to America after attending the Spar- 
How could I trip up over the word Paris? Sparis? Ugh. I really, I thought I was, I was too confident with the Byzantine pronunciations last time. Myophysite, Basiliscus, Ariadne, and I fell at the word Paris. All right, we'll take that sentence again. Another fan of haute couture was the chic Edith Rosenbaum, a fashion journalist returning to America after attending spring shows in the notoriously difficult-to-pronounce city of Paris. Yet another railway tycoon in the form of John Thayer boarded, as did steel-mining millionaire Benjamin Guggenheim and Colonel John Jacob Astor IV, head of a family who owned so much property in Manhattan that they were nicknamed the Landlords of New York. It wasn't a totally smooth operation, and not just because some passengers were uncomfortable and irritated after being kept in the nomadic for so long because of the delay caused to the Titanic's arrival time by the New York incident in England, but also because the wind had picked up and it caused the gangway between the Titanic and the nomadic to sway in the breeze, and a Bostonian, Ella White, went over on her ankle because of that and she had to be carried on board by her chauffeur and a couple of stewards. Mrs. White was joined by Marie Young, a former music teacher to President Roosevelt's daughter. Marie was euphemistically referred to in Edwardian nomenclature as Ella White's companion, although the overwhelming amount of evidence researched today suggests Ella and Marie were a couple. They had first met at Atlantic City in 1910 and had been inseparable ever since. As Marie helped a wounded Ella settle into their accommodation, the Titanic raised anchor for the final time that day to begin her nighttime journey across the Celtic Sea to Ireland for her final stop. I think a travelling day is always a tiring one, and eyewitnesses mention that most of the Titanic's passengers went to bed early that Wednesday night. It was traditional not to change for dinner on the first evening of a voyage, which helped a lot of passengers find the time they needed to get their bearings, unpack and settle in. After all, you're going to be in this cabin um, for pretty much a week. And I think one of the passengers said something like, you know, you wanted to make it home-like. So they unpacked things, not just their clothes, but also some unpacked family photographs and little mementos. As she had approached the Titanic on the Nomadic, Edith Rosenbaum thought the great liner looked like Nice during Carnival, with all her lights glittering in the darkness. One by one, those lights went out as passengers, clicking their cabin heaters on against the nighttime chill outside, curled up in bed and went to sleep. The next morning, they would arrive at Queenstown for the last deposit of mail and the arrival of some new passengers. Uh, thanks to you for listening, and also big thanks uh, to Rebecca Lenehan and Caleb Carraher for reading the words of Ida Strauss and Sham Bullock. Don't forget to give us a follow and tune in tomorrow for what passengers saw in Ireland and what was life like in second class. Thank you and enjoy your day. Mm-hmm.